This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The beautiful Crimean seaside town of Yalta was the setting for the latest and greatest conference of the Big Three. The big three during World War II were President Franklin Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin. In February 1945, they met in Crimea for what was arguably the most important diplomatic event of the 20th century, the Yalta Conference. Stalin promised that free and fair elections would be held in Eastern Europe, which was controlled by his vast Red Army. Those elections were never held, and the countries in question, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria, were taken over by communist governments. This reality was acknowledged a year later by Churchill during a speech in Fulton, Missouri. From Stettin in the Baltic, to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. The guns of the Second World War had barely cooled, and now Churchill was warning of a new threat, a threat posed by the Soviet Union and its communist system. It was the unofficial beginning of a new war the Cold War, and disinformation, the manufacturing and spreading of knowingly and deliberately false information would play a huge role. I'm Paul Brandis, and that's the name of this series. It's called simply Disinformation. The topic of disinformation is huge, ever-evolving, and touches upon every nook and cranny of our society. War and peace, the economy, politics, elections, culture, finance, religion, our belief system, everything. And today, anyone theoretically can do it. Anyone can manipulate audio, video, make things up, and post it online. How did we get to this point? Can we somehow control it? Who's doing it, how, and why? This series, a co-production of Evergreen and Emergent Risk International, a global risk advisory firm, is devoted to exploring these complex and intertwined issues. In our last episode, we discussed disinformation and World War II. Why World War II? Because it laid the foundation for our world today. In this episode, we talk about what came next. When the Iron Curtain descended across the continent, as Churchill so eloquently put it, the Cold War was on, and disinformation played a huge role. We didn't know in the early 80s and the 70s and the 60s that they had a failed economy. Meredith Wilson is Chief Executive Officer of Emergent Risk International, 
Prior to this, she spent several years with the Defense Intelligence Agency and in the private sector, primarily in the oil and gas industry. Remember, we for a very long time thought that the, the Russians were really, you know, more or less equal to us in terms of military power and their economy. That in itself was a narrative, right? That, um, you know, that, that the communist experiment was working. And it wasn't until sort of early mid 80s that, that we started to see that their economy was crumbling. We really thought that we were bipolar sort of world and we were fighting against an enemy that was more or less equal to us, at least from a military perspective. So I think a good portion of why the narrative and why the uh, why the disinformation was that was building that belief that we were, you know, we were fighting an equal power. So in terms of disinformation, just what was Moscow's strategy during the Cold War? Soviet disinformation during the Cold War was focused on a number of things. Paul Colby is the director of the Intelligence Project at Harvard University's Belfer Center. He spent 25 years in the CIA's Directorate of Operations in a variety of positions, including operational and leadership roles in the former Soviet Union. In terms of disinformation, he says what the Soviets did then during the Cold War sounds awfully familiar now. First and foremost was to weaken its main adversary, the United States to foment uh, division and dissent within the country, to drive wedges uh, between allies, particularly NATO allies, um, to discredit uh, specific individuals that they saw as threats, and to fight an ideological battle of ideas in the third world. So the winning the hearts and minds, uh, looking to discredit uh, the US and its allies in the Western system uh, uh, capitalism, democracy, uh, in the eyes of, of uh, uh, countries of Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, etc. Weaken the United States, foment division, try and divide NATO, win hearts and minds in Asia and Africa. As we consider current events, I'm obviously talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine here, it's clear that when it comes to disinformation, the Russians have simply dusted off their old Cold War playbook. But there's more to it than this. Calder Walton, also with Harvard's Belfer Center, is assistant director of its Applied History Project and Intelligence Project. He's written widely and deeply on intelligence history and its lessons for today. I think that's absolutely right, as Paul's just laid it out. There's a, I would add that there was a defensive element to it as well, which is to camouflage, deceive, disguise the Soviet regime's own weaknesses when it came to yeah. economic power, uh, social cohesion, um, and to a certain extent also military hard power. Um, although the Soviet regime had extraordinary levels of hard power, um, military hard power, uh, not as bad as um, Washington and other Western capitals feared at key moments of the Cold War, coupled with remarkable levels of poverty, third world level poverty combined with uh, superpower, hard power. You know, on that point, that's such an interesting point. It's always been my view that uh, when analysts look at Russia now or the Soviet Union prior, they always tend to focus on the strengths of the regime, not so much the weaknesses. Uh, disinformation, uh, and I think you both mentioned that, kind of played a role during the Cold War and that they would play up the strengths while masking the weaknesses, right? That's right. 
So there are two different sort of um, doctrines, um, sort of deception and then masking. And my Russian isn't isn't very good, but they have different Russian terms. Maybe Paul will be maskro. Maskro. You, you guys, there, there you go. Is the one side the corollary to uh, disinformation or disinformatia, and this comes from the long Russian historical tradition of Potemkin villages that you um, portray uh, your strength in, way, in ways that do not actually exist. Walton's point is a good one. It's important to remember that a dictatorship, a police state like the Soviet Union was and arguably Russia is today under Vladimir Putin, uses disinformation not only against others like us, but also against their own people. It's why most Russians today, for example, appear to buy what the Kremlin and its state-run media tells them about the war in Ukraine. We'll explore this in a future episode, but now back to the Cold War. Rare sound from August 29, 1949, of the first Soviet atomic test. The United States no longer had a monopoly on nuclear weapons. But unlike the U.S., the Soviets had no way of delivering such a weapon. They had no long-range missiles, no long-range bombers. But by 1955, the Soviets had apparently found a way. Moscow skies are filled with the first public display of Russia's newest combat aircraft startling Western observers with their quantity and quality. The Reds' big surprise was the Bison, their first intercontinental jet bomber, judged the equal of America's best. It's believed in full production, as are the smaller multi-jet attack bombers rated on... At this Moscow air show, the Soviets unveiled a long-range bomber. We called it the Bison. They called it the Molot, or Hammer. And they flew 18 of them, before an audience of Western diplomats and military attaches. They flew the planes in front of everyone. They disappear beyond the horizon, loop back and fly over again and again. It was a clever ruse, clever disinformation, conveying the exaggerated impression that the Soviets had lots of nuclear bombers, more than we did. Here again, Calder Walton. The bomber gap was the belief uh, in Washington in the 1950s that the Soviet Union had superiority when it came to bombers that could inflict damage using nuclear weapons on the United States. This belief in Washington arose from the statements that the Kremlin put, put out. And the, the underlying issue with all of these problems about assessing fact from fiction when it came to the nature of the Soviet regime was the incredible difficulties of collecting reliable intelligence behind the Iron Curtain in the Cold War and to actually understand what the Kremlin's capabilities and intentions were. In the first episode of the series on World War II, I explained how we used disinformation to fool the Nazis about our capabilities and intentions. Now the Soviets were doing the same thing to us. This underscores one of the fundamental challenges of dealing with disinformation then and now, and it is this. How do you separate fact from fiction? In the case of the bomber gap, Walton says it led to mistakes on our part. Honest mistakes were made about, uh, on the U.S. side and on the British side, about projecting um, Soviet bomber capabilities starting from one point and if they carried on producing them at this level 
then they would be they would produce they would be able to do x y and z and we now know from soviet archives and indeed as us intelligence later discovered that their assessments were built on faulty assumptions. Speaking of faulty assumptions, the so-called bomber gap led to the so-called missile gap, which became a major issue in the 1960 presidential election between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. It came up in one of their debates. Mr. Nixon talks about our being the strongest country in the world. I think we are today, but we were far stronger relative to the communists five years ago. And what is of great concern is that the balance of power is in danger of moving with them. They made a breakthrough in missiles. And by 1961, two and three, they will be outnumbering us in missiles. I'm not as confident as he is that we will be the strongest military power by 1963. The long Cold War, which ran from 1945 until 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, has numerous other examples of disinformation Arguably, the most famous, or infamous, concerns a hoax that the Soviets perpetrated in the 1980s. That story in just a moment. This series on disinformation is a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International, a global risk advisory firm. Emergent Risk International. We build intelligent solutions that find opportunities in a world of risk. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back. Perhaps the most notorious example of Cold War disinformation began in July 1983 when a newspaper in New Delhi, India, it was called The Patriot, ran a story. Here's the first part of that story. Quote, AIDS, the deadly mysterious disease which has caused havoc in the U.S., is believed to be the result of the Pentagon's experiments to develop new and dangerous biological weapons. Now that these menacing experiments seem to have gone out of control, plans are being hatched to hastily transfer them from the U.S. to other countries, primarily developing nations where governments are pliable to Washington's pressures and persuasion, end quote. Again, that was July 1983, one tiny third world newspaper. But then the story began to spread. Other newspapers picked it up, Asia, Africa, Europe, and then... A Soviet military publication claims the virus that causes AIDS leaked from a U.S. Army laboratory conducting experiments in biological warfare. It winds up on the CBS Evening News. That's Dan Rather on March 30th, 1987. A story about a virus spreading like a virus all around the world. How on earth does this happen? Here again, veteran intelligence officer Paul Colby. It fits in with the overall philosophy of finding wedge issues or wedge points. And so AIDS epidemic provided a, a uh, almost ideal for uh, Petri dish, so to speak, uh, for, for doing this. So a mysterious ailment, unknown cause, killing homosexuals, creating already a level of fear, panic, and conspiracy 
theories of how this is being originated. And it, I think, really highlights the issue where the Russians sometimes simply added a microphone or a, a, a megaphone to something that was already being said or already being discussed or propagated in, in smaller circles. And so with AIDS, there was there had been, even within the United States, you know, some discussion of is this a government program to get a, a genocide against African Americans and homosexuals that you know originated in Haiti, et cetera, et cetera. So it must be must be targeted. Uh, Russians, you know, took the core arguments of this and then started using their massive active measures infrastructure. So the newspapers that they had created or ran or had agents in and started writing stories, building on those themes, building out from them and putting them in third world publications. Publications like a tiny newspaper in India. It's really quite masterful. This isn't rocket science. The story was planted, dressed up. The Soviets got a scientist from allied East Germany to back it up. Walton says it's the perfect combination of the right story at the right time and taking advantage of those who were probably inclined to believe it. Of course, not every disinformation campaign is successful, but when they are, the falsehoods can plant deep roots. Even today, decades later, there are those who still believe the U.S. government developed the AIDS virus. It built on pre-existing conspiracies and beliefs, built, as always, with successful disinformation. There's often a kernel of truth there, and the kernel of truth in this case was the reality that the U.S. government had indeed um, public health authorities uh, had conducted experiments on African-American people for syphilis, I believe. There was already um, a pocket of American society that believed that the U.S. government, broadly speaking, might be involved in this kind of thing. A mysterious new virus um, appears, uh, turns into an epidemic and into a pandemic. Um, and of clearly, this is the work then of a hidden hand. Let's take a step back and explain something. Americans often think that all the KGB did during the Cold War and all its successor, the FSB, does now is collect intelligence through technical or human means. As the Russians might say, this is not true. Its principal activity is disinformation or ideological subversion. I know that espionage intelligence gathering looks more romantic. It sells more deodorants through the advertising, probably. That's why your Hollywood producers are so crazy about James Bond type of, of thrillers. Yuri Bezmenov spent years working for the KGB in India, posing as a journalist. He defected in 1970 and, after being debriefed by the CIA, settled in Canada. He gave this interview in 1984. But in reality... The main emphasis of the KGB is not in the area of intelligence at all. According to my uh, opinion and opinion of many defectors of my caliber, only about 15% of time, money, and manpower is spent on espionage as such. The other 85% is a slow process which we call either ideological subversion or active measures, in the language of, of the KGB, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent 
that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing uh, process. This brainwashing takes a long time, Biazmianov says, and with the United States in mind, the first objective is to demoralize us, to make us lose confidence in our system, distrust our institutions, and divide us whenever possible. These things might sound familiar in America today. Of course, who gets the credit or the blame for that is another question. Same thing about the next step, which Yezmianov says is the destabilization of our system. He says it only takes a few years to have people question whether our government, our system is stable or not. The third stage sounds familiar too. Given our recent history, the aftermath of our last election and the storming of the Capitol, Yezmianov's words, again spoken four decades ago, sound eerie. Uh, the next stage, of course, is crisis. It, it, it may take only up to six weeks to, to bring a country to the verge of crisis. You can see it in, in Central America now. And after crisis, with a violent change of, of power, structure, and economy, you have so-called the period of normalization. It may last indefinitely. Normalization is a cynical expression borrowed from Soviet propaganda. When the Soviet tanks moved into Czechoslovakia in 68, Comrade Brezhnev said, now the situation in brotherly Czechoslovakia is normalized. This is what will happen in the United States if you allow all these schmucks to bring the country to crisis. So, a long-time disinformation campaign, this former KGB operative claims, plants the seeds for eventual destabilization, followed by a possible overthrow of the government. It sounds like some very recent American history, but you can decide for yourself. Meanwhile, Paul Colby, again the longtime CIA veteran, agrees that Soviet intelligence officers then, and Russians now, spend a huge amount of time on disinformation and active measures. In the Soviet system and now the Russian system, um, active measures is seen as an absolute pillar of its foreign policy activity and how it shapes the world and how it shapes its own internal audiences. And so they devote enormous resources to it. The number of uh, Soviet KGB officers who are engaged in active measures uh, as part of their you know, full-time, part-time job description was um, in completely dwarfed, orders of magnitude more than on the U.S. side. Um, and Dropoff at one point directed that every SVR, uh, you know, first chief directorate officer uh, has active measures as a main part of uh, his portfolio. Um, so you've got that scale. Uh, you've got a history uh, and a continuity of operations that that um, that could make them quite effective. The Andropov that Colby is referring to was Yuri Andropov, who ran the KGB for 15 years before becoming Soviet leader himself in 1982. Of course, the great irony here is that while the Soviets were working so hard to undermine the West from within, to weaken it, to make Americans disillusioned and cynical, to foment destabilization, their own system, built on lies, and its own disillusionment and cynicism was collapsing. All my telephones were cut off. I had no further communication with the outside world. A delegation had flown out to me. Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev in August 1991, the interpreter telling the world that he was 
cut off as a coup toppled the Soviet government. The coup failed after a few days, but by year's end, the Soviet Union was finished. I am ceasing my activities in the post of president of the USSR. And that was it. The Cold War was over. The Soviet Union, the Soviet Empire, spanning 11 time zones, splintered into 15 countries. But while the Soviet Union was no more, its intelligence agencies and practices remained. Дорогие друзья, сегодня в новогоднюю ночь я, как и вы, Eight years later, on New Year's Eve 1999, the final day of the 20th century, a longtime KGB man took over. His name, Vladimir Putin. The powers of the state have been turned over to me, he said. That was nearly a quarter century ago. Putin would later call the collapse of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. The greatest catastrophe of the 20th century? Not World War II, when some 25 million Soviet citizens were killed? Not the Holocaust? No, it was, he thought, the peaceful dissolution of the Soviet empire. That, Vladimir Putin would say, that was the worst of all. And as the world now well knows, the once and forever KGB man would like to glue that empire back together. Here he's announcing the beginning of the war in Ukraine. Of course, he's using disinformation on his own people, calling it, quote, a special military operation. It seems that while the Soviet Union is history, the traditional reliance on disinformation remains very much alive and very much a key pillar of Russian efforts to advance its agenda. In our next episode... We see that our new information ecosystem is turbocharging some of humanity's worst impulses. The weaponizing of free speech and with social media as an accelerant. Thanks to Meredith Wilson, Paul Colby, and Calder Walton, also to the National Archives, CBS, and Stanford University. Our sound designer, editor, and engineer, Noah Fouts. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.